My body is not your battleground. My hair is neither sacred nor cheap, neither the cause of your disarray nor the path to your liberation. My hair will not bring progress and clean water if it flies unbraided in the breeze. It will not save us from our attackers if it is wrapped and shielded from the sun. Untangle your hands from my hair so I can comb and delight in it, so I can honor and anoint it, so I can spill it over the chest of my sweet love. This was an excerpt from Mojakov's 1998 poem, My Body is Not Your Battleground, and a great opening to our first New Year's episode of Lady Fiction, a podcast dedicated to women's writing at the Amerika Zentrum Hamburg's Transatlanticist series. I'm your host, Stephanie Schäfer, and I'm happy to start the new year with some fresh energy to discuss one of the conflicts that has been on my mind a lot since it began last year. The protests in Iran, triggered by the torture and murder of 22-year-old Masa Amini by police. Since September, we've had news from protests and revolts against the suppression of women in Iran, with the slogan, Women, Life, Freedom. When Irani women expressed their protests by discarding their headscarves and cutting their long hair, this led to a wave of international solidarity with such phenomena as social media videos of women celebrities and politicians cutting off their tresses to note their solidarity, which I found very strange. In the political arena, we've seen marches and demonstrations in support of the Iranian protest movement around the world. And with the capital punishment of young protesters seen through by the Mullah regime, the EU and the US have responded by imposing sanctions on Iran and reinvigorating an old conflict that is a dangerous one. Last November, the New York Times wrote, the United States enters a new era of direct confrontation with Iran. In Germany specifically, the protests raised questions uh, regarding the approach to foreign policy by our new foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock. Just a few days before Armini's murder sparked the protest, Baerbock gave a speech on her approach to a feminist foreign policy, a concept rooted in the struggle for gender equality pertaining to rights, resources and representation and to diversity. So here are a few questions I've been asking myself since. How does this feminist foreign policy approach go together with the careful weighing of sanctions and the diplomatic dealings with the Iranian regime we've seen? What does a feminist foreign policy mean and how do Western nations transport their own understandings of feminism alongside their economic interests to other spheres of interest and to other countries? And how would artistic responses to this conundrum deal with this? So all these are my questions and I will direct them at my guest today, whom you already heard in the opening, Dr. Katharina Motu, who hopefully has answers. Hi, Katharina. Hi, Stephanie. 
no pressure here, right? So, <laughs> some small questions. <laughs> some small questions. So uh, before we start talking, I want to introduce you so our listeners will see why you're such a great commentator on this topic of imperial feminism and Arab-American responses. Katharina Motul is assistant professor at the American Studies Department of the University of Mannheim. Her second book project is titled Dependent in the Land of Liberty, Drugs, Addiction and Power in U.S. Culture from the Early Republic to the War on Drugs. Her publications include the edited volumes Who Can Speak and Who is Heard Hurt, Facing Problems of Race, Racism and Ethnic Diversity in the Humanities in Germany, and The Failed Individual Amid Exclusion, Resistance and the Pleasure of Nonconformity, published with Campus in 2017. Her articles have appeared in the Studies of American Naturalism and Interconnections, Journal of Posthumanism. And her PhD thesis at the FU Berlin examined Arab-American literature since 9-11 and the literary production of Arab and or Muslim women in the U.S., as well as Arab and Muslim feminisms. It's under contract with Campus Public Publishers. Dr. Motul also inv investigates the nexus between digital anti-feminism and uh, other feminisms, and these all make her a perfect conversation partner for today. So, Katarina, here's my question. Isn't it great that so many pretty white ladies cut off some hair to declare their feminist support of the Iran protests? What do you think? I'm a little ambivalent about it, because obviously the protests uh, were sparked in Iran Iranian women have been incredibly brave, you know, taking off the headscarf, which in the Islamic Republic is um, mandatory to wear. So as has been documented, the regime has not exactly been, uh, you know, soft on these women. And then sort of this idea of, of cutting off um, hair, this came about in the social media and, you know, white mm. Western celebrities um, taking up the issue. So it's been helpful because, you know, these um, actresses enjoy all types of capital. And if they on Instagram raise awareness for this very important political issue in Iran, That's, of course, to be lauded. I think we just need to be careful to still seek out what Iranian women in Iran want, right? Or, or at least, you know, then listen, you know, to, let's say, Iranian women or their allies in the West who can translate um, from Farsi. So I think probably the ideal approach would be, oh, you know, someone is made aware, like, let's say, in Germany or the US uh, by, you know, Claire Danes' video posted on Twitter and Instagram, but then hopefully they'll, you know, get interested in the issue and branch out and to actually, um, you know, seek out some Iranian women's voices. Yes, and I mean one of the one of the key points about this has been that the regime has also started banning access to social yeah. media platforms. So social media has become, quote unquote, a little bit of a battleground in this conflict as well. Access to to the social media platforms and um, to that kind of self expression, but also 
protesters have been tracked down through their social media profile and they have been prosecuted and executed. Yes. Uh, so this is a really, it's such a, a timely conflict, if that's not so such a, you know, cynical thing to say, but um, it's, it's really difficult to, to entangle all the, the strands mm. of protests and um, all the meanings of this. Mm. And um, while it's clear that, you know, the repression of women has, has to end, I also think in some of the utterances uh, of, of uh, Western feminists, there's a certain, a certain kind of, you know, lack of knowledge or maybe disregard for, for what the struggle really may be. And so I, I'm so happy to have you today and to talk with you about this um, double standard. Uh, because in your, in your article, Saving Maria, Mitsu and Masha, Uh, U.S. imperial feminism from the Mexican-American war to the war on terror, you, you identify the concept of imperial feminism and mm -hmm. you discuss it and say that basically the U.S. has always pursued its imperial power interests even when it claimed it was saving women from, you know, evil paternalistic men so mm -hmm. let's let's talk about this imperial feminism thing a bit definitely i'd love to this work on how western empires have justified their imperial presences in muslim majority countries uh, was um, this important research was carried on by leila ahmed and so she originally coined the term colonial feminism and so basically the british were the first in you know mid-19th century when they um, established imperial rule in Egypt. Lord Cromer, who um, de facto was the um, yeah, uh, well, president, the governor of British Empire in Egypt, he published this massively influential volume, Modern Egypt, and here argued mm course, in this by now quite familiar binary of East versus West, where, you know, the East, so Islam and countries culturally influenced by Islam were cast as backwards, unrational versus the West, which was cast as rational, enlightened, these things. And um, Lord Cromer argued that Egypt, Egyptian backwardness, of course, and, and scare quotes, manifested in the degradation of women, which Lord Cromer argued was inherent to Islam. And he argued that the practices of gender segregation and particularly the practice of veiling showed, exemplified uh, the oppression of women that um, was, according to Cromer, inherent to Islam. If the East, so again, this um, shorthand for Muslim-majority countries, were to advance on the path towards civilization, the practice of veiling needed to end. In this article, uh, which you mentioned, I then argue that in the war on terror, the global war on terror, 
um, which um, the George W. Bush administration uh, waged on Afghanistan, and then later Iraq, the George W. Bush administration and the U.S. basically took up this legacy of Western imperial feminism in the greater Middle East. And then later, I sort of broadened this investigation and actually found out that even in earlier imperial endeavors, for example, the Mexican-American War in the 1840s and then also in the occupation of Japan following World War II, the U.S. actually justified its imperial presence by pointing to the plight of local women, which the U.S. wanted to improve. Mm. And that became the reason for invading, taking over. And um, in, in your article, you write, it's a, a gesture of white men protecting brown women from brown men. Yeah, this is the Spivak term. So Spivak yes, um, calls yes. this, of course, you know, her, her research is on India, and she calls mm. this white men saving brown women from brown men. Yeah. <laughs> mm. These are places of conflict where the empire, in this case the US, arrived and they had geopolitical interests and then they needed a crutch to 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 stand on a rhetorical crutch and uh, one of this these crutches became the liberation of of veiled women. Thus making appropriate an Arab and Muslim women into the discourse of, you know, imperial fantasy and of course replaying orientalist tropes of and you get this specifically with the war um the uh, mexican war in the 1840s the senoritas who are only longing for a white savior mm -hmm. so there's a lots of effective dimensions mm -hmm. in this as well as uh, poor victims looking for liberation um and um You know the 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 good empire, the American American niceness all played out. This is a term that um, Carrie Tirado Brahman has written about. So, Katarina, how is imperial feminism challenged by Muslim or Arab feminism? What do, what do have what do feminists of color have to say mm -hmm. in response to mm -hmm. the project yeah. of imperial so, feminism? So this is this is a very important question because what we were just uh, talking about basically that. The U.S. and, and us, other Western countries have cloaked their imperial ambitions in feminist rhetoric. This is not to deny that in you know Afghanistan in the late 90s and turn of the 21st century, there were real women's rights violations as for coming back to today's con uh, context, of course a problem that the Islamic Republic of Iran mandates that women have to veil when they leave the house, right? The aspect of choice is missing. And I know through personal experience, because my partner is originally from Iran, that actually first graders already have to veil. So my husband's niece mm in Tehran, when she uh, started school at six years old, she had to veil. And this is mandatory. But the point, of course, is that 
imperial feminism takes away agency from local women, be it Afghani or Iranian, who are actually organizing around these issues. So as um, Lila Abu-Lukhod, an um, American anthropologist of, of Arab descent, um, has argued in her seminal work, Do Muslim Re Women Really Need Saving? So even in this extremely repressive Taliban regime in the late 90s, there were Afghan women who were, you know, trying to organize against the Taliban's prohibition that girls and women receive an education, for example. It's just that the issues they were centering was not so much clothing, right? Whereas like in the West at the time, it was all about the burqa. Ooh, the Taliban mm. mandate mm. that women have to wear the burqa. And again, the point is, of course, that if it's not a choice, it's repressive. But it's very interesting to see that Afghan feminists were centering on education, right? Whereas in the West, yeah. this obsession yeah. with the veil that has been there since really the beginning then of, of Orientalism, and particularly, as I mentioned before, since the British established imperialism in Egypt, it's just this obsession with modes of clothing, whereas, you know, as... as um, Arab and Muslim feminists will argue um, what really makes a difference in women's lives is not so much clothing, but access to education, health care, protection from sexualized violence or ways of redress when sexualized violence has been visited upon women. Okay, but so yeah. bridging <laughs> into the actual poem and Moja Kaf, the problem is that, or, or that, that Arab and Muslim feminists in the greater Middle East, but also then in the Western diasporas face, is that this long tradition of Western imperialist feminism has tainted the feminist struggles. So that yeah. feminists in Egypt, but also, let's say, Arab American feminists frequently are criticized for allegedly continuing the usurpation of their communities that imperialism mm. started. And so... Mm -hmm. I have an example. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, this, is, this just came to me. So this is the second Sex in the City film. Mm -hmm. So Sex in the City is the uh, series of the 90s uh, about four young women in their 30s dating in New York. And then they get to travel and they go to the Middle East because they need to get away, get some sun and, you know. And they're in a room with uh, Arab women. And, um, of course, there's a huge divide between those, you know, also liberal white women who, you know, wear their Malono Blahniks and uh, pertain to Western beauty standards <laughs> in the short skirts and, the, you know, normative images of, of beauty. And then all of a sudden, these Arab women start taking down their veils and 
ta-da, who would have thunk it? Underneath, they're wearing designer clothes. And then there's a huge scene of, you know, international feminist reunion where they all, you know, confess to being in love with, I don't know, Gucci and Versace. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I mean, this is almost 20 years ago, I think, that the film came out. Um, but I thought it was such a arrogant gesture because, it, you know, in this chick-lit manner and this, you know, post-feminist backlash, it totally totally undid anything that you know Arab feminists were struggling for and reduced it to oh you get the money you can wear the bright colors underneath the burqa you can still be free in your right right veil yeah, yeah it was such a paternalistic imperialist gesture I thought it was terrible but that's sex in the city 20 years uh, I ago I couldn't agree um, I couldn't agree more it was as you outlined extremely pop problematic because freedom was equated with the freedom to consume and I think the subtext was if I remember this terrible film correctly it was designer lingerie so yeah. there might even have been this narrative oh there is polygamy in the Arab world mm -hmm. in the generic Arab mm -hmm. world and of course these women then have to compete for they mm -hmm. might be the Makes second so or third worse. wife and they have to mm -hmm. compete for the attention of the husband so you know who can wear the sexiest lingerie um yes wow. so this is certainly how not to do it <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. yeah so let's talk about a response uh, that you outlined or that you quoted from in the in the opening mojak halfs uh that my body is not your battleground a poem mm -hmm. so in a nutshell This poem from, as you uh, pointed out, the late 90s actually still is extremely current. So it's a powerful indictment of the instrumentalization of Muslim women's bodies in the male-dominated traditionalism versus modernization debate within the Islamic world. And at the same time, the poem is a powerful celebration of women's corporeality and women's mm -hmm. sexual self-determination. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you talk about corporeality? What do you yeah. mean? Mm -hmm. So we repeatedly find, just like in the stanza which I read out, the speaker's appeal to a you, and this you, again, mm -hmm. I read as the Muslim establishment, which comes in two shades. I'll go into this later. So this appeal to this you to untangle your hands from my hair. Leave me to discover the lakes that glisten in my green forests. Who mm -hmm. has given you permission to put your hand there. So basically, it the whole poem, which I would say comes close to like a Muslim feminist manifesto in short form perhaps. Mm. So it argues mm. against cassecting, so um, loading Muslim women's bodies with symbolic meaning in a instead arguing for a celebration of 
Muslim women's bodies in its materiality, right? So Lee mm -hmm. basically... Mm -hmm. Leave me to discover the lakes that glisten in my green forests and to understand the power of their waters. So, of course, your waters. I don't know if I have to spill it out, but of course, a <laughs> um, you know metaphor um, um, alluding to some of the physiological responses women's bodies have when sexually aroused. So it's definitely a controversial poem, not only in terms of the subject matter, you know, it's such a heads-on, a self-assertive and heads-on confrontation of the male Muslim establishment, but, you know, also performatively by a mm. Syrian-American woman who was at the time of that the poem was written. She was just, you know, in her early 30s. So, of course, here performatively, Mojakov challenges stereotypes Western hegemonic discourses may have about Muslim women, right? She very much writes about things that are considered taboo even by Western standards. I mean, you know, women's sexual self-determination and masturbation, and I don't think you find that um, mm. in the New York Times too often. Perhaps now, but not mm -hmm. in the late 90s. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, what I find is interesting is, is that it's not, when we talk about this, who's the I and who's the yeah. you? So my body is not your battleground. Mm. Obviously, the lyrical I is going to be a reflection of Mojakaf, the author. Mm -hmm. But the you... And what she wants to do with her body are not so, they're not, you know, spelled out. So this is, on the one hand, obviously speaking back to Muslim men, but it might also be speaking back to American imperialism, which I find is so interesting. So it starts with the body parts that needs to should be released. Mm -hmm. So in the first stanza, the body part that needs to be freed from um, paternalism is the breast, the marker of uh, female identity, whether it be a biological one or a uh, non-biological marker of gender. So um, it says, my breasts seek amnesty, release them so I can glory in their milk-tipped fullness so I can offer them to my sweet love. And the sweet love here can be the child for breastfeeding, mm -hmm. but it can also be a lover, mm -hmm. a lover who remains... Mm -hmm uncertified it could also be you know a female lover mm -hmm. so it's really um interesting that opposite this you who is attacking uh, the speaker and uh, who has hijacked her body is a lover somebody who the speaker is tuned to who might be a child who might be another partner who might be a sexual you know mm -hmm. Uh, a, a woman sexual partner and it's really in this indeterminacy that the privacy also lies of this. Mm -hmm. It's not declared and it shouldn't be declared. Mm -hmm. So it's really a response. I think it seems to me with this indeterminacy, it seems the you can be both a man, both the Arab establishment or the international um, imperial project telling Arab and Muslim women how to feel and how to be, specifically with the hair. That's where I got mm -hmm. the, <laughs> we talk a lot about hair here, specifically with the hair. My hair is neither sacred nor cheap. My hair will not bring progress and clean water if it flies unbraided in the breeze. Mm -hmm. So all the, you know, Claire Danes and the celebrities cutting off their hair 
it really, you know, it doesn't do anything other than making a nice photo op on social media. Um, that would be my, that was my critical response. So I liked the stanza, untangle your hands from my hair so I can coom and delight in it. Yeah. You know, keep your hair off my yeah. hair, I guess. <laughs> That's the short hair woman. Maybe I'm just, I have short hair and I've always had short hair. So I'm, I'm attuned to hair topics a lot. Uh, okay. So. Sure. I thought you gave a, an excellent reading. So this ambivalence, I think this is very much central also to the poem's aesthetic and political agenda. I think there are, let's say, a few hints that, you know, suggest reading um, you know, the you in a certain way or perhaps the speaker's situation. But then there's always um, these moments where, as you pointed out, ambiguous readings are invited. So I, um, for example, would make a case that, you know, the milk-tipped fullness and um, then um, is it your skin that will tear when the head of the new world emerges um, so mm. the speaker is probably writing from the perspective of a pregnant woman and, um, you know, this child that comes out into the world may be a girl. So this is one of the ways you can read it. What what kind of world do I want from for my uh, daughter or also, you know, for my son? <laughs> you know, and that particularly, as we may have made clear in this conversation so far, that gender plays such an important role in, you know, with regard to hegemonic discourses on Arabs and um, Muslims, right? So the, of course, the, um, in, in Hollywood, um, you know, the, this is extremely polarized stereotypes about Arab women, either the hypersexual seductress mm, or Jezebel, the, yeah. um, you know, veiled, read, oppressed uh, woman. And I would um, argue along with um, Evelyn Asutani, an Arab American media studies scholar, that actually, in fact, both of these stereotypes, which at first glance seem quite diametrically opposed um if you read them in terms of a metonymy or an allegory so you know woman standing in symbolically meaning country right i mean this you know you're you're an expert on <laughs> figurations of the national i mean right this was so central like in the 19th century so like whatever lady liberty then standing for the u.s yeah. as a whole and so you know if we're standing with the hypersexual seductress you know doing this come hither gesture to an american male viewer of course this this in a way invites hey come hither u.s intervention and of course then you know the veiled meaning uh, oppressed woman is also um inviting u.s intervention in the sense of oh you know let's bring you know light to this oppressed part of the world something like this mm. and the reason and i think you're completely right to argue that per se uh, the you can be read as um you know the muslim establishment or actually western u.s um or western or u.s imperial feminism or even you know Western feminists who don't take seriously Arab and Muslim feminists, I would make a case that with this part 
has God then given you permission to put your hand there? Mm. There again being the private parts, I mean, it was private areas, um, I think before the, yeah, that uh, sort of the text implicitly makes a case that the you it addresses is the male Muslim establishment, which, as I mentioned before, comes in uh, <laughs> two iterations, if you will. It's interesting to see that, um, you know, once um, British imperialism had established itself in Egypt with this thesis that, you know, Egypt, what Egypt was lacking was civilization. And this was particularly uh, visible when one looked at the way um, that Egyptians treated women, this trope of the allegedly inherent um, misogyny of Islam. Egyptian middle-class and upper-class intellectual men were internalizing this discourse, right? Mm. And were then arguing, oh, um, this is true, and you actually, and this was, again, not, not just the case in Egypt, but sort of in greater Middle East and some other countries. So, for example, in the early 20th century, you had the Mohammed uh, Reza Shah in Iran arguing that veiling um, needed to stop, that this was uncivilized. And you had um, Ataturk in Turkey arguing that, um, you know, we're, we're someone, we as Turkey are modern, and this practice of veiling is, is just backward. So this was mm. basically the hegemonic discourse in many Middle Eastern countries, and Nasser too, right, Gamal Abdel Nasser in the 1950s um, was arguing against veiling. And then really, through this Islamist resurgence, did this idea uh, come about that in Muslim-majority uh, societies that actually... Um, these societies uh, needed to go back to um, their own culture and, you know, needed to rediscover Islam and with it the practice of veiling. And this was, of course, that the, the fact that this Islamist um, resurgence has been quite powerful this, of course, has mu had much to do, has had much to do with the disappointment that yeah, many in Middle Eastern countries were feeling regarding a Westernization yeah. and U.S. interventionism. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to resume with the question here of the uh, Imperial Feminist Project and um, how to speak back. It's a post-colonial or decolonization effort on the one hand, of course, but it's also an effort of using different channels. And it's so mm. interesting to see, you said earlier, this might be a manifesto, which would ask us questions about how to, what is our understanding of a manifesto for a social movement, right? The, you know, the, the surrealists and all the avant-garde made very sure that we know what a manifesto is supposed to look like. So if this is a, a, a corporeality self-assertion manifesto, it's also intriguing that it's uh, collected in a... Um, story collection or poem collection that's called emails from his Scheherazade the orientalist storyteller who tells story to you know keep at bay her execution in the tales of a thousand and one nights so it's really it's it's wrapped up in that bind you can't get 
I mean, you can highlight the Orientalist paradigm, but you can't go outside of it. It yes. seems there's no returning. It, it's 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 a big problem. So let's just say, I mean, this is also you know among Arab American writers, some are uh, saying, guys, we really need to stop making intertextual references to mm-hmm. Sherazad or mm-hmm. stuffed grape leaves, <laughs> because basically mm-hmm. we're yeah. just perpetuating stereotypes. Um, but particularly, I, I think your observation is spot on particularly to this question of how does the Arab American community or Muslims generally respond to Orientalisms and it Orientalism and its extremely gendered stereotypes. So again, I've already yeah. talked about the yeah, the obsession with the veil. With, with the yeah. veil or, you know, the, the woman yeah. as, you know, op- either oppressed or hypersexualized. And then, of mm-hmm. course, Arab masculinities being represented as, you know, the misogynist, potentially violent, you know, having a temper. Mm. We have seen a lot of that recently in Germany, I have to say. In German politics is... Uh capitalizing on that it's become a hot button issue so yeah you mean with the with the um with the pashas and the and the with the the, pashas and i guess uh, new year's the idea that um migrant young men were attacking police and rescue workers Mm. yeah certainly and it's um interesting yeah to see how has the community um responded so let's say that these so just in a nutshell right we can um, basically these discourses have really been proliferating since the 1960s so it's not that mm-hmm. you know in earlier times there weren't these stereotypes but basically they've just calcified since the 1960s and then arab american ethnographers and sociologists such as nadine naber have been arguing that the way that Arabs in the U.S. were responding was to just basically reverse the binary thinking. So whereas yeah. you in, in hegemonic discourses that we were talking about, you had the binary and then basically they were um, just flipping it around and arguing that, you know, virginity was very important. And whereas, you know, the, the uh, West is sexually corrupt and young, whatever, white American girls are dressing inappropriately. Our own daughters, so um, Arab daughters, are, you know, respectful and appropriate and dressing appropriately and that, you know, virginity before um, marriage is, is valued. And um, it's, so this does seem to be quite predominant for a while. And I would then say that pretty much since the early 21st century, when suddenly Arab and Muslim Americans were really in the limelight of the media, and of course, you know, this this whole early war on terror discourse, Arabs and Muslims being suspected of being terrorists, having to justify themselves, basically this spotlight, whereas one would have thought, oh, the idea is we're already under threat, so let's not air dirty laundry. 
that this was also actually used as an opportunity to say no let's let's actually you know defy some harmful western stereotypes but let's per perhaps also rethink the cultural politics that's hegemonic in our communities and um mm -hmm. to actually and yeah really arab american muslim american feminists and their allies have been invested in that work, namely to deconstruct these binaries as such. And also um, you know, saying, well, you know, there is some misogyny in our communities. Queer and trans um, members of our communities have had a particularly hard time uh, perhaps, and to basically bring bring that all out in the open and have a discussion about it. Yeah, and that's the one point that I that where I had an issue with um, Mojakov's text yeah. because it seems to me at the end it's quite essentialist. It's basically also a pacifist text, an anti-war text, and the the ending basically makes this point. And it says, "Withdraw from the Eastern Front and the West. Withdraw these armaments and this siege, so that I may prepare the earth." for the new age of lilac and clover, so that I may celebrate this spring the pageant of beauty with my sweet love. So it reiterates on the one hand, it says, uh, you know, domination is war and it needs to end. And I can, I can totally hear that. But um, it recedes to a um, essentialist trope of, of the woman nurturer <laughs> mm. so that I can prepare the earth for the new age of lilac and clover, the new woman cultivator. I may celebrate this spring, the pageant of beauty with my sweet love. You know, it doesn't leave a lot of space for non-binary uh, readings or queer readings. It's feminist in a binary kind of sense. And um, I wonder when we talk about this Coming back to what I opened with, all the big questions asked mm. <laughs> in the opening about feminist foreign policy. So, so art has uh, reservoirs for responding to this and performing otherness. But what Baerbock talked about in her speech just a few days before Masa Amini was murdered was the adaptation of a, um, a feminist foreign policy based on the three R's. That would be rights, resources, so education, and representation. Mm. And she added diversity to this. Mm. And of course, then after Iran happened and the protests um, were increasing, lots of conservative commentators came back and asked Baerbock, so what's going on with your feminist foreign policy? It's all, you know, it's all just words and, and no, no do. Um, and uh, since we've seen Baerbock talk to the Iranian ambassador, we've seen her broker sanctions on the Iranian regime with the Europeans. So I do think at the end of the day, there is such a thing that's a feminist foreign policy, but it needs to include diversity and it it can't be limited to a, what I would call maybe, you know, adapting your term that you so usually um, define. It can't be an imperial feminist project. We're saying we are uh, more civilized than you, so you need to, you know, have your women, uh, have your women uh, walk freely in the roads and, and you know abandon the veil and you know it needs to veer away from that obsession with veiling and unveiling mm -hmm. and that's I think what was at work when all the wonderful beautiful white women started cutting their hair off because they saw this as the ultimate act of liberation that they wanted to parrot and maybe speak back and and use to express their solidarity. But investments in education, 
in uh, political representation are much more important. So this this week, we've also had news from Afghanistan, which you also talked about and which nobody cared about the women of Afghanistan when the Americans got out and the Europeans hastened to get out to this, this was last summer. It's a catastrophe, really, right? No one cared about um, Afghanistan's women. And now, <laughs> now this week, um, I was I was heartened at the same time as I was I was still, you know, surprised that we get so little media coverage. But I was heartened to hear that the Taliban now allowed women to go back uh, with NGO work, to be workers in NGO organizations, because the women of, of Afghanistan are still fighting by themselves. And it's not so much about the veil. It's basically about the three R's. Resources, rights, and representation. So it's really not about the body, the body um, panic around dress. <laughs> it's really about the bigger issues. And uh, yeah, I think that's where we have to be careful not to re-import the imperial feminist project here. And I, I want to, I'm also interested, um, maybe we can... Maybe there's not much time we talk about it another time, but there are uh, new books about feminism coming out uh, that are attacking, or at least they're critical of white feminism. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Rafia Zakaria's Against White Feminism, published in 2021, and I'm particularly interested in Kaila Scholler's The Trouble with White Women, mm -hmm. A Counter History of Feminism, which puts case studies of feminist positions one against each other. So a white feminist position against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mm -hmm. in, in the US. So these are recent books. And I wonder if they also have something about hair, because this, this is my personal hair episode. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm interested to keep up this conversation. Yeah. And I mean, perhaps I haven't touched upon this um, yet, but the it was not just that George W. Bush and um, his administration were arguing that intervening in Afghanistan would bring very oppressed women rights. I mean, of course, first ladies were involved. Also speeches by Laura Bush and uh, Tony Blair, the UK being the US's closest ally in the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. It was actually the Feminist Majority Foundation. This is a mainstream feminist organization testifying in Congress in the fall of 2001 that, you know, basically uh, supporting an invasion, arguing that um, women in Afghanistan were so oppressed and basically needed, you know, help so that interventionism was justified. Whereas it's uh, no secret that those individuals most affected by wars are usually women, Uh, right. Mm. So, um, mm. I mean, what, what kind of freedom does bombing bring? It's yeah. Um, yeah. this. Is, this is, of course, now also in the in the in the moment in which we're talking. I want to make clear that I, I don't think pacifism is justified in each and every case. I mean, we're just you know facing mm. Putin's war of aggression or even settler imperialist um, <laughs> aggression against Ukraine. But of course, we have to be very specific. And I think responding to this unprecedented terror attack of September 11th, there could have been other ways of responding. I mean, first of all, yeah. one could have treated this as, you know, a criminal justice case. 
um, you know, and so on. I mean, I don't have a PhD in political science, um, mm. but sort of it was, mm. there were several options. And then basically to argue, well, you know, uh, Osama bin Laden sponsored these terrorists. Let's now go for Afghanistan, where Osama bin Laden is located. That was a very particular response. And again, some yeah. mainstream feminists really, I'm sorry if this sounds very emotionalized but i mean really like um, the feminist majority f foundation in a way has has blood on its hands because it really testified before congress that you know this u.s intervention was justified and so mm. there are i'm so glad you're bringing up these um these recent books that yeah discuss power asymmetries within feminism but even um I think in the early 2000s, this book, this bridge we call Home, and this gathered women's of color's uh, voices who were, amongst other things, talking about their ostracization in feminist circles or their not being taken seriously by uh, white feminists. So I guess it almost sounds like a mainstay to you and I, but like this important idea of intersectionality and being mindful of one's own situatedness and being mindful of the tradition of the discourse in which one is speaking is, yeah, extremely important. Yeah. So this podcast started with so many questions. <laughs> I know that I, some of them are answered. Some of them, it's quite obvious. We need to keep up the conversation and be mindful of this um, imperial feminist discourse that often comes to pass as a, as a kind of supremacy in heels, which is a, a headline from Harper's Bazaar, which I find a, a nice metaphor for this because it also replicates this beauty standard and con uh, consumption thing, consumerism thing. So... Um, we will certainly keep an eye out on the discourses and, of course, on the struggles uh, of the women in Iran and remember the struggles of women elsewhere. I have learned today not to focus so much on the veil, but focus on other things as well. And I'd like to thank you, Katarina, for being my guest and sparring partner in this. Thank you, Stephanie, for giving me the opportunity to discuss these important matters with you. Thank you. So to all our listeners out there, I hope you enjoyed today's session and uh, please tune in again soon. Bye-bye. just so you know once again the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host not the america centrum which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy thanks again for listening